0: This is Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, bringing you insights and views from across Asia's food value chain. Now, for today's interview. Hi again, everybody. I'm Duke Kip, host of Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast. We have a great guest with us again today. We're pleased to be joined by Dr. Siti Abdul-Malik. She's the Associate Professor at Singapore Institute of Technology also, previously the executive director at the ASEAN Food and Beverage Alliance. Hi, Dr. Sidi, How are you?
1: Hi, do good morning. I'm good. Thank you.
0: Yeah. No. Thanks for joining us. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. There's a lot going on, as you know. So, with that, uh, in the spirit of the five good questions, I'll I'll start with the first question and and uh, get things started a little bit. We recently recognized World Food Day not that long ago, a few weeks a few weeks back, mm-hmm. and really, it's impossible, as you know, to talk about food in Asia about touching on the state of food security in our region, it's always a topical issue. According to the UN's latest data, just from earlier this year, the number of hungry people in, in Asia rose uh, last year from 418 million to 425 million. That means that Asia continues to lead the world. Unfortunately, a number of people affected by hu- hunger, huge issue for this for our region. What do we need to do to make sure our food systems are able to produce enough safe, affordable, nutritious food to address the uh, the growing food security challenge? Uh,
1: That is without a doubt uh, uh, an unsettling uh, statistics. So in my opinion, uh, the possible pathways to make sure that our food system can produce enough uh, affordable and nutritious foods will require addressing drivers of food insecurity, malnutrition, as well as unaffordability of healthy diets. So uh, among these drivers will include the variability and extreme climate change because extreme heat, severe weather and droughts, as we have seen in, you know, the, uh, the last 10 years can affect the yield of agriculture products. There will be lower crops. There'll be more uh, spoilage by microorganisms when the temperature, you know, uh, goes up in, in places where it used to be temperate. Not only that, the changes in the shipping routes due to extreme weather events can also interrupt food delivery, and that can cause disrupted uh, supply chain and hence food insecurity in in this part of the world. Um, Not only that, we also have the economic slowdowns and and downturns, and as you have seen recently, the COVID-19 has actually caused quite a serious disruption in terms of availability to food and also affordability. And uh, this has caused actually increased undernourishment, uh, particularly for women and children in urban areas. And, and as you are much aware, urbanization is, is on the increased in, uh, you know, all parts of the world, including Asia. Other than that, another driver would be the geopolitical conflicts that we are experiencing now, because as the Russia and Ukraine conflicts goes on, we are seeing serious disruption to food supplies because at the end of the day, Ukraine and Russia are the uh, bread baskets of the world. And because of that, uh, we are having an instability in the uh, supply chain and there's a massive decline in the uh, major stable food and this Uh, in turn drives the price of food uh, globally closer to home we can see that Cambodia for instance Philippines and Indonesia has been hit hard because they do import wheat from Russia and Ukraine to augment their local supplies other than that the last uh, driver that I would like to touch on is the unaffordability of healthy diets Evidence has shown that there is a direct correlation between countries with high unaffordability of healthy diets with higher levels of uh, severe uh, food insecurity. Hence, these drivers of food insecurity, malnutrition and unaffordability of diets has to be addressed for us to have more affordable, more uh, healthy diets, as well as uh, affordable foods in Asia.
0: Well, thank you for that. No, you just raised the other three big C's. I know we hear about this this podcast quite a bit. COVID, climate change, mm-hmm. conflict. And we'll get into that a little bit a little bit more uh, in just a bit. But uh, thank mm-hmm. you for, for that. So one thing I did want to touch on with the second question um, is I know it's not an area that you're maybe not necessarily in your wheelhouse around farmers, but I wanted to touch on that because it is sort of a unique aspect to the um, food value chain here in Asia that we're home to the smallest size farms in the world greatest number of smallholders. And so it creates a unique amount of uh, number of challenges. Uh, it's hard to really overlook. Um, among those, of course, access to finance, landholder rights issues, labor shortages, availability of technology, and of course, as you mentioned, the growing impact on climate change, which is undeniable and um, is, is widespread now around the region. But so just with that in mind, and again, I know maybe not necessarily something that you is in your area of expertise, but it's it's certainly something we want to touch on. How do we do a better job at, of enabling and empowering these smallholders? produce more food to address some of these challenges and growing the food that we need to to feed this growing population here and really around the world. Any, any thoughts on that?
1: Uh, well, yeah. Um, uh, clearly, there are challenges when, you know, you have small farms. But looking at the current trend, I would say... Small farms would be more climate friendly than industrial farms, you know, just to put in context, I guess, you know, uh, small farms, although they do produce about one third of the world's food supply by value, they do have, as you say, challenges. But nevertheless, just to put in context, when it comes to reducing carbon footprint, uh, small farms are actually uh, very environmental friendly because they do use sustainable-based practices like you know organic farming, crop rotation, and not only that, they serve the domestic markets. Hence, you don't really need uh, you know a lot of energy to transport the the produce from the farms into the domestic markets. But having said that. Clearly, you know, they have to be assisted because of the specific challenges that they face. So one of the ways I believe that we can actually assist these uh, small farms, they are are needed because, you know, they do help to reduce the carbon footprint, but they will need to be brought into the national policies. That means if any policies involving agriculture, the, the challenges of these small farmers have to be addressed. And not only that, any planning in the national agriculture, national plans, has to involve the uh, small farms because of these unique challenges that they have. One way that we can actually improve the small farms is through digitalization. So small farmers have to go digital because digital... Tools have shown that up-to-date information, best practices, the know-how of agriculture can be delivered instantly on a timely manner to these farmers, mostly in Asia. These farmers obtain all uh, this knowledge from, say, physical agriculture extension um, uh, experts, as you have uh, clearly indicated, with the low labour, including Agricultural specialist, it is uh, prudent for these uh, small farmers to actually educate themselves and go digital because that will reduce the time of getting the uh, experts to them. Uh, And also, not only that, they are able to have the information at the tip of their fingers. So, uh, again, you know, digital tools, yeah, they can look at what are some of the support services that they can go to. Uh, One example uh, that I found that is called AgriPath, which is the collaboration between Farm Better and uh, Gramin Foundation that allows the farmers to know about good farm practices, access to finance, and other latest development in the agriculture space. So I think going digital would definitely be one of the options. And I guess in the national digitalization plans of the countries in Asia, they should include some innovative tools that small farmers can use. Another way where we can actually uh, enable and empower the small-holders farmers is to provide them with technologies that are climate re- resilience. So, uh, for example, like they can actually look at systems that ca- they can uh, anticipate and prepare for, as well as adapt from the impacts of changes in climate and extreme weather. So, uh, for example, they can use better seeds that can actually sustain during extreme weather changes. They can use irrigation techniques that ensure that they have w- enough water supply. So those kinds of climate resistance agricultural uh, technologies can actually help uh, these smallholder farmers to empower them to produce more food and uh, feed a growing population.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. I mean, technology has come up in so many of these conversations. I think you're you're certainly not alone in, in seeing the the, uh, the importance of it going forward. And you yeah. also touched on climate change. So the next question, I wanted to kind of kind of stay on that topic a little bit. We talked about the, the three Cs, conflict, COVID, and, and climate change. Mm-hmm. And uh, on climate change specifically, earlier this year, CropLife Asia and ASEAN conducted a research survey uh, among policymakers across the region, uh, and they noted that climate change impact was the biggest obstacle for food systems right now in the region. And with COP27 still fresh in our minds, Know, that that discussion and that that ongoing uh, you know, push to make sure that again governments are working to uh, ensure that we're we're you know we're meeting the challenges head on and being more resilient with all this, particularly with it for us within the food systems uh, space. Are there next steps you would recommend with respect to making our you know our region's food policy environment with climate change mitigation adaptation more robust or more you know forward leaning?
1: Um. Well, I don't have much information on, on that. Uh, as you are very much aware, I'm, I'm in the, the food space rather than the agri space. But mm-hmm. what I can see from the COP27 is the implementation of FAST, F-A-S-T, which is the Food and Agriculture for Sustainable Transformation. And at this moment, not many Asian countries are signatories to that. So I guess joining, say, FAST would help to galvanize the action in addressing the uh, environment and climate change mitigation. I I also see that the COP has a a breakthrough agenda and through this, it is uh, aimed to speed up decarbonization in the agriculture sector. And if we look at the signatories, there's only like Five Asian countries that's in it, and one of the countries is Cambodia, which is part of the ASEAN member states. Other than that, you will see Asian countries like China, India, Japan, Korea. I guess, you know, together when we have critical mass, we can actually speed up better ways to to increase the sustainable transformation of agriculture.
0: Great insights, and, and to be perfectly frank, you know, we're recording this really in the middle of COP27, so we'll know more, of course once it's all concluded and have a better handle on that. But that's very, mm-hmm. very helpful. I, I'd like the fourth question maybe to uh, to go back to um, one of the areas you raised a few minutes ago, we were talking about technology and you mentioned digitalization in particular, uh, came up as sort of a, a one of the things that could be a solution helpful going forward in climate change. So one of the issues that we face, of course, around food and ag generally is around uh, the regulatory space you know, no matter how great the technology is, if there's no regulatory framework there to underpin it and make sure it's available and it's actually being used, whether it be from the farm or somewhere else across the food value chain, it, it doesn't really uh, help because, of course, it's not being able to be accessed by those who need it. Well, what, are you, what are your thoughts around that, around uh, comparing Asia, I guess, to the rest of the world when it comes to putting the needed regulations in place to make sure those innovations, whether it be digitalization or other, other technologies, are, are available to those who need it here in Asia?
1: Um, Yeah, I think Asia is catching up in this space, you know, in terms of the uh, regulatory changes. Again, I do have uh, quite a bit of experience here in Singapore. This has been discussed prior to this uh, podcast where Singapore's uh, regulatory regime has actually been very forward-thinking and very practical. Two examples that I would like to bring up perhaps for discussion, is that Singapore, especially the Singapore Food Agency, you have seen several enabling regulations. Again, enabling doesn't mean compromising the safety of consumers. So you can see that the first authorization of cultivated meat, I think a few months ago in May, that is Really brave, I would say for Singapore, but nevertheless, they have done a good job of looking at all aspects of safety so that the consumer's health are not being compromised. But having said that, you know, um, we can see that it is uh, a trailblazer. There are other countries looking at it now, especially in Europe uh, and America, looking at how Singapore has done it. Again, to be fair, Singapore is a small country. Uh, Nevertheless, the idea here is to adopt a forward-thinking process Uh, And that's, that's practical where the industry can actually grow. So I think that being said, uh, Singapore is well poised to actually lead the way to look at regulatory changes. Another example that I would like to also bring forth is that Singapore has put in place the Singapore Food Story or the 30 by 30 um, policy to ensure 30% of the nutritional needs of Singaporeans come from local. And in one of the initiatives that they have done is to establish a very aggressive urban agriculture Singapore doesn't have much land. And through the Edible Garden City initiative that was launched in 2012, Singapore has looked at facilitating the setting up of safe and productive farms. And to this effect, there are uh, more than 200 edible garden farms in Singapore that can actually produce at least uh, 150 kilograms of leafy greens and 150 kilograms of mushrooms per month. That's a big change from where we were, you know, maybe 10 years ago. And not only that, recently, as recent as last year, uh, there have been a regulatory workshop established by the governments led by Singapore Food Agency, where they involve other government agencies in looking at how to ensure the success of this initiative. So they brought in the agencies that allows for, for example, like to look at how to develop policies and come up with new farms. They brought agencies that can help in farm development approvals. They also look at zoning of land use and also for addressing uh, trade waste and management. So all these agencies came together and come up with a guideline that uh, helps to set up high tech farms in Singapore. And this gives farmers or new farmers a leg up in ensuring that they can uh, you know, set up high-tech farms in Singapore within the legal limits and help the success of this 30-by-30 uh, 30 30 policy that has been set up by the Singapore government. Yeah.
0: Thank you, yeah. Dr. Sidi. Yeah, thank you for that. And, uh, and everything you just touched on, we certainly heard that as well. The, the Singapore continues to punch above its weight when it comes to the regulatory space and 30-by-30 uh, 30 30 initiative is front and center, a great example of that. Uh, so thank you uh, for that as well. So we've come to the last question in the uh, in the podcast. And so with this one, we usually like to kind of we, we lighten up a little bit with some of the tough questions and, and thinking about, you know, a lot of the challenges we've gotten into today. Uh, headwind, climate change is huge, uh, and conflict, of course, in, in Europe, as you as you alluded to, and and COVID, the lingering effects of that. And we're seeing that still with the food supply and availability of um, affordable food. So maybe taking a look a little bit into the future, if you look in the crystal ball five or ten years from now, is there one thing that you you look at and think will be a great development for our region and within food systems? It doesn't have to be on the farm. could be could be at any any part of the food value chain uh, here in Asia. Something that you think you, you look at and you say this is going to come to fruition. it's going to be a positive development for us.
1: I'm not going to look at a thing. I think there have been discussion around um alternative proteins, for example, mm-hmm. cellular agriculture, for example. I would like to look at it more from a systems uh, perspective. So I would say that efficiency in the regional food value chain would be one development that I think will come into fruition in the next 10 years, you know, because we are already seeing uh, some fruitful efforts uh, at this moment. For example, When we look at the efficiency at the producers level, you know, there have been a creation of ecosystem uh, that allows for economies of scale. For example, like privately owned family farms to large uh, corporate farms have been collaborating to actually increase the scale. And when you have economies of scale, it drives down the the, uh, price of food. Therefore, one way that we see that it's been happening, at least in some parts of Asia, would be the pulling of farms between the large and the small uh, farms and sharing the profit on a simple, for example, area basis. We are also looking at there is a collaboration between farmers and fresh produce uh, cold chain uh, logistics uh, providers where government is providing incentives to these cold chain logistics providers to allow on-time delivery uh, with minimal uh, post-harvest losses. So this kinds of collaboration between small farmers, large uh, conglomerates, and the government together allows the increase of uh, economies of scale that will drive the efficiency in in the supply chain at the producer's level. And at the processor's level, which is the midpoint of the uh, food supply value chain, we also see some adaptation to the economies of scale. For example, you can see that there are quite a few of uh, merger and acquisitions in the last, you know, five, ten years. Uh, When you have this uh, acquisition, it allows consolidation in efforts to secure raw materials uh, that's required uh, for their processing. And not only that, they share operational processes and therefore there's an enabling environment for scale. Hence, you know, uh, when we have this kind of consolidation of companies that has different markets, we can actually open up new avenues for growth for the food companies. At the retail and distributors level, uh, we can see that there have been customizing of portfolios by the retailers to meet local consumer demands. Hence, that, uh, that provides efficient delivery of these products to the target uh, markets. And not only that, because of the now increase in the middle class with increased disposable income, this customizing of of products for their needs, I guess, you know, increase the reduction of food losses. And not only that, you know, we allow more affordable products to get to the target market. So I think Uh, With that, I would say efficiency in the food supply chain in Asia. I think I would say thanks to the pandemic that actually allows all these initiatives to blossom because before this, it's, you know, uh, same old, same old business. Now it's no longer business as usual. It is business as unusual. And hence, I think the supply chain is looking at how to efficiently get the produce, you know, to the target markets without having environmental unfriendliness issues coming into play. So that's the reason why I said earlier that small farms can and does play a role uh, in in getting this efficient supply chain uh, up and running.
0: Thank you for that. No, I think that's a it's a terrific answer. If there's, if there's a silver lining from all from COVID in particular and all that, it's helping drive that efficiency. Hopefully, going forward, so it makes a lot of sense to me. Well, with that, you're officially off the five good questions hot seat before talking again soon. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review and subscribe. We look forward to bringing you another five good questions interview.